So my family and I enjoy uh, going camping over the summer, and we camp a lot. I mean, camping is cheap. Uh, the kids love the outdoors. Uh, it's just a wonderful, relaxing time for me and my family. But my first camping experience here in Canada was not as exciting, if I may say so myself. The reason is we had gone to Manning Park. Lightning Lake is where we had gone camping. And uh, I was a novice, didn't know anything. So I went to Canadian Tire, bought a cheap tent, uh, cheap air mattress, you know, cheap little flimsy sleeping bags. And my wife and I and our two kids were so, so young, under five, both of them. So off we went to Manning Park. So we set up camp, we set our, our tents and everything. We are having a wonderful time trying to do the marshmallow thing in the evening. That's great. And then we go in into a little tiny tent, air mattress, and we go to, to sleep. So around 3 a.m. in the morning, um, I'm trying to get warm and we're trying to cuddle the kids, my wife and I trying to cuddle the kids and keep them warm in this little tiny tent. So my head is down here and the, and the tent uh, wall is right here. So as I'm trying to sleep and keep warm, all of a sudden I hear this loud noise. And so what is the loud noise? It was an animal, a big beast of an animal that had just exhaled so loud right there, outside. So between me and the beast was this tent material at 3 a.m. in the morning, and it is pitch black. I couldn't see anything. The moment I heard this sound, every, every hair in my body stood. And now I'm wondering, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And right in the middle of this um, panic, um, tense moment, I realize I have to go. I have to use the bathroom. And so all these thoughts begin running through my mind. I had seen like signs to show, yeah, this is bear country. And I'm like thinking, okay, yeah, what's the big deal? It's a bear country, yeah, so what? Didn't pay attention, didn't even bother to find out, okay, so how do I keep myself safe or whatever? I thought I'm going camping. I mean, how bad could it be? I get to camp, everybody's having a good time. So I was totally oblivious to the fact that, yes, camping is fun, but there's also a present danger. I didn't know this. And so right now, I'm inside this tiny little tent, shaking, wanting to go, and wondering, okay, should I leave the tent? And what if I leave the tent and the thing is outside? And do I go alone? Do I wake everybody up? Because how can I go across camp, leave my wife and my two kids in this tent? What if this thing now comes after them? Now, what kind of a dad would I be? And I want to be a man, but yet I'm terrified. Terrified about this situation. You see... In that moment, I was so alert, I was so sober-minded, but I didn't know my enemy. I didn't know this enemy that was outside. What if it's a bear? How do I spook it so that it goes away? How do I stand my ground against it? How do I read its body language and know, am I... Am I in danger, or is it just passing? Is it a mama bear? I had no idea. No idea at all. You see, we are in week three of uh, our spiritual warfare series that we are calling Know Your Enemy. And so basically this sermon is Know Your Enemy Part Three. 
And we will be looking at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 to 11, verse 8 to 11, sorry. And we will learn two things. Two things we will learn. The first, what the enemy does. We will learn what this enemy of ours, the devil, whom we've been talking about the last two weeks, we will learn what he does. And then secondly, we will learn what we are to do. So what the enemy does and what we are to do. So I'll read the text, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 to 11, and then we'll unpack uh, it together. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. All right. So, what the enemy does. So what does this enemy, this devil, what does he do? You will see that in verse 8. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Now, in the book of Job, Job chapter 1, you find a very interesting story there where God uh, wants to meet all these angels in some part of heaven. And Satan shows up to this little meeting. And so God will look around and say, and, and, and notice Satan and say, hey, Satan, where have you come from? To which the devil will respond saying, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. So he's roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Question, this going back and forth, is he just going back and forth endlessly? Or is there a mission that he is on? See, as a young boy growing up, I grew up in the ghetto in Nairobi, Kenya. And so in, our, in, in, in this ghetto, there were some boys who had no employment and they had dropped out of school and a lot of them were using drugs and they were in gangs. So I remember, I was probably about 11, 12 years of age, and I would leave my house, I'd have to walk two blocks and then get the bus to school. There was this particular young man, bigger than me, he was probably about 19, 20 years old, big guy, muscular, but always high. And this young man, his, his job, I guess, was just to hang around and loiter around the, the neighborhood. And then when kids are coming out of school, he'd be waiting for kids to come. And then as the kids come, he would stop the kid, he would look into your bag, begin to ransack your stuff, and then put his hands in your pockets and grab any loose change he would find. My mom would give us a few coins to buy some, some, some candy at the snack shack or the sugar shack at school. She'd give me a nice sandwich for lunch and sometimes I would save my sandwich for a snack an after-school snack when I get home. And this guy would find my snacks, he'd eat them. He'd find my crayons, he'd take them. He'd find my loose change that I'm trying to save up because I want to buy this nice little toy, he'll take it. And he did this constantly, constantly. And so every time I got off the bus and I was walking home, I would always be looking to see whether this enemy of mine is prowling around. And if I didn't see him, I'm always walking, looking over my shoulder, looking over my shoulder, and if he saw me, he would literally beeline for me. 
and he'd grab my stuff. See, your enemy, the devil, is on a mission. As he's prowling around, as he's roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth and back and forth, he is on a mission. And we'll get to what that mission is in just a bit here. See, in many cases, we, we, we say, yeah, Satan is powerful, but God is, you know, God is God, and God is good, and he's all-powerful and all-sovereign, and it's true. The Lord is sovereign, and the Lord is all-powerful. And then we assume, yeah, well, well, Jesus is with me, so because Jesus is with me, I'm strong too, and I can stand up against the enemy, sometimes using my own strength. And many, many, many times we underestimate the power of this enemy. Notice what Peter will say. In this opening verse, verse 8, be alert and of sober mind. Why? Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Like a roaring lion. So what does that roaring lion mean? Basically, it means that this being has power. He has a lot of power. If you've ever heard a lion roar, when you hear a lion just roar, full-on roar, you will know this thing has power. Maybe not ultimate power, but boy, oh boy, this thing has power. Your enemy has a ton, tremendous power. He is capable of bringing overwhelming suffering to an individual. And how does he do this? Two ways, you know, there's these subtle forms of, of, of oppression that he would do, so he'd begin to tempt you. This is what Mark Birch was preaching to us last week. He'll come and he'll lie to you and he will tempt you to do the wrong thing. Or he may come and begin to discourage you, tell you how you're not good enough. You're not good enough for your job. You're not good enough for God to forgive you. You're so wicked. You will, amount for, you will not amount to anything, really. You're a wicked sinner. And he'll want, he, he will continue to remind you how you fall short. So that's just a subtle way that your enemy will get to bring total devastation into your life where you now become anxious and depressed because he's discouraging you constantly. But he can also unleash fury and bring tragedy and destruction to you. How do we know this? The book of Job. Job's story is a very, very interesting story where when God meets Satan asking where Satan is from, Satan says, yeah, I've been roaming around the earth, going back and forth, basically prowling around back and forth. God says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? He's a blameless guy, upright. There's none like him on the face of the earth. Satan says, yeah, it's because you've put a hedge around him. Lift the hedge and you will see. Let me, let me get at him and you will see that he will curse you to your face. God says, fine, have at it, but don't kill him. And then Satan now has his way with Job. What does he do? In a single day, Job's kids are gone. Seven sons and three daughters killed in a single day. All his wealth gone. All his business interests are done. His friends have abandoned and deserted him. Job remains faithful. You jump to chapter 2. Same thing happens. God and the angels are meeting somewhere in heaven. God says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? He's a blameless and upright man. Even though you, Satan, you incited me to be against him. Satan says, skin for skin. 
Let me strike his body. He will certainly curse you. God says, okay, fine, but you'll kill him. Shouldn't kill him. All right, then. What does Satan do? He inflicts Job with disease. And, and Job has boils from the crown of his head to the sole of his foot. Dogs come to lick this soul. Talk about unleashing fury and bringing tragedy and destruction to someone. Now, pause sermon for a minute. Here's a little bit of a side note. Now, when you hear the power that Satan has to bring all this destruction, you might assume that, okay, yes, God is powerful, but man, Satan is powerful. So if he can do all these things, so it seems like God and Satan are almost equal powers. So this is this this tag of war where God sometimes is winning and then sometimes Satan wins. And then God sometimes wins and Satan sometimes wins. So it's almost like an arm wrestling or a tag of war situation where God has his way sometimes and Satan has his way other times. And many people believe that this is how the cosmic powers, this is what's happening in the spiritual realms. This is not what the Bible teaches, really. If anything, if anything, the Bible teaches that God has meticulous sovereignty over Satan, absolute power over Satan. Why would I say this? Again, let's go back to that story in Job, chapter 1 and 2, where Satan would say, yeah, lift the hedge. The reason why Job is worshiping you is because you put a hedge. Lift the hedge. Let me add him. Why is Satan asking for permission? And not only that, so God says, okay, fine, I'll lift, the I'll lift the hedge. The hedge is gone, but Satan, you will not kill him. Is God now making a pact with Satan, kind of like begging Satan, kind of telling him, don't do this, buddy? Or was God laying down an ultimatum saying, yeah, you can have your way, Satan, but you will not kill him. You will not have your way. Not only that, in the New Testament, in the New Testament, so Jesus is walking around with his disciples and he's healing people, he's doing all these miracles, and then he begins to encounter people who have demons in them. Now, some people would assume, yeah, demons are so um, unruly, they are disobedient, which is true, but when they are faced with the Son of God, face to face, you would assume that, hey, you know, demons would probably be insubordinate. It's like these kids in class who are so unruly where the teacher comes and says, please be quiet. And the, the kids are looking at the teacher saying, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do to me? And they keep uh, taking selfies and fighting and having food fights and things like that. You would think that this is what demons would do. When Jesus shows up and says, hey, leave this person. And the demon would say, yeah, what are you going to do? I'm living. What are you going to do? Demons don't do this. If anything, there is this instant obedience. When Jesus says, quiet, the demon is quiet. When Jesus says, be gone, the demon is gone. Not only that, there is a story about this Gentile woman who comes to Jesus. And her daughter is, is demon-possessed. And Jesus is seated at the table, and this woman comes, and she's begging Jesus to heal her daughter. And Jesus says, hey, you know what? It's not right for me to take the children's food and toss it to the dogs, which is a very weird statement, by the way, but that's for another day. This woman says, yeah, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the, from the table. 
And Jesus looks at this woman and sees her face in him. And he is so impressed and he says to her, what you've come to seek, it's been done. Jesus doesn't even say, to the, the daughter is nowhere near there. Jesus doesn't say, okay, father. He doesn't pray and say, father, let the demon go. He doesn't talk to the demon. He just basically tells the woman, yeah, what you've come to, 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 to seek, yeah, it's been done. In other words, the demon is gone. Gone instantly. That is power. Where you don't even have to talk to the demon. You just have to will it gone. And it's gone. There is no equal tussling. Satan with God. It's not even a fight. It's not even a fight. Unpause the sermon. So. What does the enemy do? He prowls around like a roaring lion. He has power. And his power can bring significant, significant devastation. The other thing that he does is as he's roaming around, he is looking for someone to devour. His desire is not for your good. His desire is not for my good either. So I'll give you an example. So uh, I visit some friends of mine up in uh, Williams Lake. And my kids love going up there. See, this, this uh, friend of mine, he loves hunting. So there was this time we'd gone out, and he has some guns and everything. So I was with him, and we're going around, and we're looking for deer and things like that. We're walking around. And so he began talking to me, just telling me, hey, this is what hunting is about. Ezra, this is what we do. This is what we do. And so he's telling me a very interesting story, saying he said to me, experienced hunters. What they do is they're not in a hurry to harvest one of the animals that they're hunting. They're never in a hurry. So sometimes experienced hunters who just want to take the time, they'd bring some seed, grass seed. And so they would get into the bushes, and they're walking around, and they find a nice little clearing, and they'll clear it, and really clear it. And then they'll begin to plant the seed, the grass seed that they have. They'll plant it and plant it and come and check on it periodically and plant it. And just make sure that it's a nice, nice grass, soft and sweet. And then it won't be long before the deer find this little spot. So they'll be coming, and they'll be eating. They'll come and eat. They'll come and eat. And then he comes, and he plants some more, and he plants some more. He might do this for a year, 18 months. And the deer will just be coming, and big bucks will come, and they're feeding, and they're feeding, because this grass is sweet as compared to all that is in the bushes there. And then when the hunter is ready, when the animals are so not expecting or aware, he'll be 50 meters away with his rifle. and He will wait for the perfect deer to show up. And we know what will happen. The hunter's goal is not to pet the deer. It's not to make friends with the deer. It's not to pat, pet it on the back and say, oh, what a beautiful little deer. His intent is to harvest this thing, to eat it. 
And this is the intent of Satan. When he lures us and he gives us all these nice candies and we think, oh, this is great. Give us more. And we come for more. And we come for more. And we come for more. And we think, man, this is the best thing ever. It's like, hey, he's a hog farmer and we're all hogs. So he's feeding us and feeding us. And we're just thinking he's the best person ever until the day of slaughter comes. And we are devoured. So what does this enemy do? He prowls around like a roaring lion, a powerful person. He's walking around with the intent of finding someone whom he can take out. And secondly, he's looking, he's looking, he's looking for you and me. He's on the hunt and we are the prey. So the question, what are we to do? Peter will say, be alert and of sober mind. He's prowling, looking for someone to devour. So what are we to do? Second point, we are to resist him. We are to resist him. So back to my, my upbringing. So in this ghetto area where we lived, um, my dad kept telling us, Ezzy, you will not play with the kids outside. He'll tell me and my brothers, you are not going to play with the kids in, in, your, in, your, in, in, this, in this area. Not playing with them at all. Why? Because a lot of those kids had foul language. Many of them were in gangs and they were using drugs and they were doing all these crazy things and my parents did not want a bad influence. Why? Because they were saying, you know, bad company corrupts good morals, Ezra. So you're not going to play soccer with these kids even though I wanted to play. No way. So anyway, so these kids of this, um, the, the, the other kids, this unruly, this really bad kids, kids in gangs. So they began to kind of look at us, me and my brothers, as softies. And, and, and they kept saying that, yeah, you guys think you're too good for us and things like that. So they, were, they, they constantly just were walking around together. They either play soccer together or just get into mischief together. Now, in Africa, we have dogs, but these dogs are not inside dogs. They're just outside dogs. They're stray dogs. They eat from trash cans and things like that, garbage dumps and all that. They're just filthy dogs. So these kids would go and begin to befriend those dogs, but they'd be walking with, the, with these dogs so that they would have these dogs attack anybody who uh, they feel like they just want to harass. So one day I tell my mom, hey, mom, I'd like to go just for a walk, stretch my legs, things like that. Fine. Mom said, Ezra, go. So I went. So as I'm going on my nice little walk, and everything is all good, and I'm a few blocks away from home, and I turn the corner, and who is in front of me? These kids and their dogs. And I thought to myself, oh boy, this ain't going to go well. I turned, and this guy, I could hear him say, get him. And I ran and ran and ran and ran. And I could feel this dog right beside me. Is this what Peter will say to us when this roaring lion comes? Is our response to run like Ezra ran? No. If anything, the image I'll give us is, some of you have probably watched The Lord of the Rings. I think it is the second movie, the second show, the, twin, uh, the, the Two Towers. 
And in this show, Gandalf, they're in this, uh, this cave. And so they're going through this cave and this, this demon, a huge demon is fire coming out of his mouth. And so Gandalf and, and all these guys are running and they're running and the, 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 the dwarves, they're running, they're running and then they, they go through this uh, bridge and the demon is right on their tails and then Gandalf turns and says, you shall not pass. And he's talking to them, talking to this demon, talking to this demon and the demon is roaring right back and Gandalf says, you shall not pass. This is the image. You stand your ground. You dig your heels in and you stand and resist. This is the image that Peter wants us to have. This resistance is an active resistance and it may involve this intense struggle so how do, we, how do we do this? How, how, how do we begin to do this? Final point, we are to stand firm in the faith. This is how we resist. We stand firm in the faith. What do I mean by that? This is what I mean. First, you stand firm in your faith by remembering the gospel. You remember the gospel. Look at verse 10. Peter's writes saying, and the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So when he begins this verse by saying, and the God of all grace, what is he talking about there? This God who had grace for you and me. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish. See, that's grace. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He demonstrated his own love. His grace towards us. This God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory. You belong to God. You belong to God. And yes, this, this roaring lion may come. And this roaring lion may bring intense fear and, 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 and scare you and roar and do all these crazy things and bring all this destruction. You don't belong to him. You belong to someone who is greater. You belong to someone who is greater. And that's why he will end in verse 11 saying, to him be the power forever and ever. In other words, to him be the sovereign authority. This God, forever. Sovereign authority. So we remember the gospel. Second, the second way we stand firm in faith is we acknowledge that suffering is part of the game. We acknowledge that suffering is part of the game. What? Why would I say this? Look at verse 10. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while. After you have suffered a little while. Meaning, suffering is part and parcel of the Christian journey. Suffering is part of the game. A few verses to, 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 to really show you that this is so. First Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Peter writes, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Isn't that an interesting statement? 
Verse 13, but rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Suffering is very much a part of the deal. Okay, let's mix authors here. So Paul, what does Paul say about it? In Philippians chapter 1 verse 29, Paul writes, he's saying, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Isn't that an interesting statement? That salvation is a gift that comes, it's a basket that comes with two gifts. The first is salvation, I believe in Jesus. It's been granted to you that you should believe in him and also suffer. So they come together. Belief in Jesus, yeah, followed by suffering. What does Jesus say? Jesus in Mark chapter 10, verse 29 to 30, he says this. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brother or sister or mother or father or, or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundredfold much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. I found this very, very, very interesting. No one who leaves all these things behind for the sake of the gospel will fail to receive a hundredfold Homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields, all that is so good, along with persecutions. What? So Jesus will tuck this in there. What's the point? Suffering is part of the deal. It's part of the deal. But lest you get discouraged, remember that you're not alone. You are not alone. Because, because in verse 9, Peter will say, resist him, this roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. Why? Because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same suffering. So there are others, other brothers and sisters in the faith, other Christians like you who are going through the same suffering. So I've been involved in mm, a lot of missions work and I've traveled to various countries around the world to get involved in church planting efforts in those countries. So for example, been to Romania, India, Turkey, Uganda, met church planters and pastors who are planting churches. And one of the things that happens when you go on missions is you share testimonies. And so I love hearing stories. How did they come to faith? What are some of the challenges? What are evidences of God's grace? And as I'm hearing these stories, all in, Across the world, same story, different context. How Christ totally restored, how Christ transformed. He brought someone from death to life, basically. Granted salvation, and not only that, as this person begins to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, man, the enemy, this prowling lion, roaring, Seeking someone to devour, man, the enemy takes a pound of flesh from them. In all these nations, and even some of us here in Canada, when I hear testimonies and you say, wow, the enemy did a number there, didn't he? Yeah, he did. So, 
lest you get discouraged by the fact that persecutions and, and, and suffering is part of the deal, you're not alone. You're not alone. You're not alone. Even in your suffering right now, you're not alone. Even when you feel like Satan is here, right in your doorstep, you're not alone, dear Christian. You're not alone. Remember, it's just for a little while because he will say, hey, you know what? This God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you've suffered a little while. It's not going to be forever. It's just a little while. It's not going to be eternal. A little while. In other words, step back and look at the entire picture. Yes, right now the fire is hot and it's overwhelming. And if you only focus on the now, yes, it will be absolutely debilitating. But if you stand back and you look at the greater picture, there is glory awaiting. And that's why Paul will say, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18, he will say, for this light momentary affliction. Just think about what he's talking about. The, 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 the hurricane and the fury and the destruction that Satan may bring. Paul calls it, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an internal weight of glory beyond all comparison, he says. As we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Light and momentary affliction. So my daughter and I, there is an interesting show on Amazon TV called The Eco Challenge. And you have people from all nations, including Canada. Canada, I think, had two teams in this, in this um, race. So uh, two team, a, a, a lot of teams are there. And the, the premise of this eco challenge is you will just be running through the terrain and riding your bike and, 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 uh, and walking and hiking and, and swimming, maybe, and, and going on, 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 um, in the ocean, rowing your boat in oceans. And it's just a crazy race. You'd have to go about a thousand some kilometers to the finish line. It'll take you about seven days on foot. You're going through all this crazy terrain. And so a lot of teams are just struggling with bugs and the terrain and the rain and the mud and all the craziness in this race. Some, some, some teams, you have a teammate who's so sick, you have to bow out. There are those who are in that race who are there to win, but many of them are there to finish the race. And so at the end, the last episode, you now see teams who are finishing are coming to finish. And I remember previous episodes where they were talking about how this difficulty, this challenge, this woman had a big gash on her leg, and this guy was almost passed out, he almost died, and this person had this issue, and that person that issue. They almost gave up, but they kept going, they kept going, they kept going, and now here they are, the finish line. They know what they each said. This is so awesome, so awesome. The fact, the glory of finishing, receiving that medal outweighs the suffering of the race. See, that's what the Christian life is like. Right now, we're in this eco race and it's so hard so hard and we may lose some some of our comrades 
and it's so hard. We're pushing, we're pushing. But remember one day, one day, when we cross that finish line, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes to make all things new, one day we will look back and say, the glory that is ours now is great in comparison to the suffering that we just endured. This God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory, what does he do then? What will he do when Satan comes like a hurricane and he just swells and batters and batters and pounds you completely? What does this God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory, what does he do? He will, in verse 10, restore you, make you strong, firm, and steadfast. And it almost seems like he's not just going to make you strong. He's going to make you firm. And he's not just going to make you firm. He's going to make you steadfast. And you will stand. Therefore, we get out of the tent. Get out of the tent. And we face the enemy. Let us pray. Father, we come to you. Thank you for this few moments you've given us to engage your word. I pray, dear Lord, particularly for those who are now right in the midst of a fiery trial. Father, you know the details and you know each one. Lord, would you have mercy? Lord, would you deliver us from the evil one? Deliver this individual's, Lord. But we also pray, Lord, would you accomplish your purposes. Thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign over the enemy. Thank you, Lord, that the enemy has no free reign to do what he wants. But that, Lord, you set limits, power over him. Father, help us to have our hearts our eyes squarely focused on you. Grant us your grace even in these days, Lord. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to stand firm. In Christ we pray.